Peace be with you. So good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas State, and we're so glad that you are here this morning. If you want to uh, open up your Bibles and turn to Amos chapter 7, Amos chapter 7, we're looking at verses 1 through 6 there. In Amos chapter 7, as we slowly but surely make our way through this minor prophet, of course minor, does not speak in terms of his importance, but of uh, the, the length of his book, Amos is very important, and he's been important for us over the last several weeks. Um, if you are a guest with us, we'd love it if you would take a few moments to fill out a connect card. You can go to veritasdayton.org connect. It's a good way for us to, to learn how we might pray for you and how we might uh, get you um, plugged into what God is doing here in our church family and, and get to know a little bit about you. We'd love to connect with you through that means. All right, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're going to read Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Let's listen with reverence and joy as if Jesus Christ was himself standing there speaking these very words to us. These words come to us with the very same authority this morning. So let's listen with the same kind of reverence and joy. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use the hay and stubble of this sermon to ignite a fire in our hearts to be a people, a church, a community of intercessory prayer. And would you, would you use this text to show us something of the heart of Christ to help us to hear the heartbeat of Christ toward us so that we might be so encouraged and assured and empowered to come to you in prayer. We pray these things for the glory of the name of Christ and in his name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, as we're making our way through the book of Amos, I have been a little worried that you might be getting the wrong idea about the guy. Dan and I were just talking this last week about how Amaziah, in this very chapter, is getting the wrong idea about the guy, and, and we kind of feel like we have to come to his defense. We like him. 
And um, so I don't want you to get the wrong idea about the guy. I'm afraid that some of you might be viewing him as, as um, a kind of a street preacher, which he is, uh, but, but a particular kind of street preacher, a, a street preacher who kind of revels in pronouncing doom. Someone who, who stands on the corner without compassion or care, rather enjoying himself as he yells at passerbys. And viewing him as such would be to, to fundamentally misunderstand the man. Amos is not a grumpy fundamentalist. He's not a grumpy fundamentalist. Uh, Amos is a preacher, and he's a prophet, but he's a preacher, and he's a prophet that's moved with compassion and sympathy for his audience. And we get such a, a clear picture of that this morning as we, as we see an aspect of his ministry that we maybe haven't seen yet. We see Amos as a man of intercessory prayer. We see his compassion and his sympathy, and it moves him, his, his compassion and sympathy for his audience moves him into intercession. Now, some of you may not be as familiar with uh, that term. You heard it in some scripture readings earlier, this term intercessory prayer or intercession. Uh, if you've been around Veritas at all for any length of time, you, you know about the practice. You've, you've been a part of it because we do it every week. You just saw Dan do it right now. But intercession is simply prayer on behalf of of others. Intercession is, is praying for the needs and the desires of others. Or John Bunyan, he perhaps put it way better than I could, he put it this way, he said intercession is prayer, but all prayer is not intercession. Intercession then is that prayer that is made by a third person about the concerns that are between two. That's what's happening here. We see this morning, Amos 7, Amos is praying as a third party about the concerns between God and the nation of Israel. And if you're all at all familiar with the scriptures, this very well might bring to mind for you a number of occasions in which this kind of thing takes place. There's Abraham interceding for Sodom in Genesis 8. There's Moses interceding for the nation of Israel on Sinai. There's the, the, the high priest interceding on behalf of Israel on the Day of Atonement is laid out in Leviticus, and, and there's more. And we, we see this, this encouragement to, to continue doing this. And in the New Testament even, as Paul in 1 Timothy 2.1 calls that in churches, he says that intercessions should be made for all people. And here in Amos 7, we find a, a faithful example of intercession before us. Look with me first. We're going to look at the, the example of intercession. Our text begins with Amos receiving a, a vision from the Lord of looming judgment against Israel. And uh, we're going to see several of these visions over the next uh, several weeks. Uh, and, and they each begin with a particular saying, saying, this is what the Lord God showed me. Or your translation might put it like this. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. It's literally, this is what Adonai Jehovah or Adonai Yahweh showed me. Jehovah or Yahweh is, of course, the, the personal name of God given to his people by him to, for us to call him by. And Adonai is, is this, uh, this title which speaks of the Lord's absolute sovereignty. His, his, his absolute sovereignty in, in all things. These two words are, in effect, 
an invitation to prayer, really. They show us that the Lord is absolutely sovereign and limitlessly powerful. He can do anything above anything that we can even ask or think. He's utterly able to answer any request, any prayer, and yet at the same time, he's also the one who's condescended to his people so graciously, so kindly. He's given us his personal name, a deeply relational and intimate act. And then furthermore, he's he's inviting Amos to pray here since he's showing Amos what he plans to do concerning the judgment of Israel. If that's not an invitation to pray, an invitation for Amos to pray and Israel to repent, then I don't know what that is. That's an invitation here. And here's what the Lord showed him. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. What does that mean? The Lord was forming and preparing a horde of locusts to descend upon Israel's crops. And evidently, these are are the crops after the first harvest. The first harvest would have been left for the the king and his cohorts. And now there's the second harvest. This this horde of locusts is going to come before the second harvest, which would have been for the farmers and and the citizens in Israel. This is a problem. This is what inevitably lead to a famine in the land, and many would be without food even for the next year. People would starve. That might seem harsh to us, but but remember, remember what, what had been going on for Israel for some time now. They had been committing these gross social injustices, crushing and oppressing the poor and marginalized under their feet. They'd been stealing from the poor and marginalized through their court system. They've been sexually abusing household employees. They've been living lavish and ornate lifestyles on the backs of the poor and oppressed. The Lord hates it. He's angry. His wrath is burning hot toward Israel because he loves the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. He has a special place in his heart for such peoples. And so, moved with compassion toward the least of these, he pronounces pending judgment Upon Israel to Amos. And yet Amos, also being a, a man of compassion and sympathy, he, he takes up the cause of Israel as his own and he mediates, he intercedes on behalf of Israel. He says, oh Lord, God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. Like a lawyer, not a dispassionate lawyer, but a, like a passionate sympathetic lawyer, he goes to the bench on Israel's behalf, and he he knows she's guilty, so he's not pleading, he's not defending her, he's just pleading with the Lord, saying, interceding between Israel and the Lord, and saying, please forgive Israel, please forgive her. That he refrained, that the Lord refrained from judging Israel and his mercy and his patient forbearance. And to this earnest plea, the Lord responds and answers Amos' prayer. He says, being a gracious God and one who does not desire the destruction of the wicked, it says this, the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be, said the Lord. And from there, Amos moves on to tell us uh, about another vision. And we don't know when this vision took place in relation to the first one. It could have been minutes later, it could have been years later, don't really know. But another vision comes to Amos. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and it was eating up the land. So this isn't locusts. This is fire. 
And fire is a, is a you know, relatively common metaphor used for judgment in Scripture. But here, this, this fire is all-consuming. And notice that he says in his vision, this fire devoured the great deep. This, this, is, this fire in this vision burns so hot and is so all-consuming that it devours the depths of the sea. It, it, this fire devours water. And it too, he says, will burn across the land of Israel, destroying and decimating everything in its path. And again, Amos is moved with compassion and sympathy. And so he approaches the bench, passionately pleading and interceding for Israel. And this time, instead of asking for forgiveness, and and, and, it seems like in just breathless desperation, he just cries out, stop! He says, oh Lord God, please cease! How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The one who, he's the one who hears the prayers of his people and loves to answer the prayers of his people. He does not resist Amos's plea. Again, it says the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. And so we see here in this, in this pleading prophet an example a faithful intercession. He, he goes to bat for Israel. He takes up his, her cause as his own. He goes between her and the Lord, pleading for mercy, for forgiveness, for patience. And in this, we, we see something of our calling as God's people, don't we? We find here in, 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 in Amos a, a sort of wardrobe through which we can enter into the world of intercessory prayer. Like Amos, we... we, we we know that God is just, that he, he won't tolerate gross social injustices in the nations and wickedness and sin. We know that there's, there's a final judgment coming. He's shown us this. We know this is true. He's given us his word. He's shown us, like the prophets of old, there's a judgment coming, a worldwide global judgment coming. And for those who do not trust in Christ, Living or, or, or eternal destruction in the lake of fire awaits them. For those who repent and trust in Christ, there's eternal life in the new heaven, the new earth. We know this. And as people who know that, we, we're called to be a people of intercessory prayer. And, and we can't stay that day. It's fixed. It's coming. But we can intercede to the end that that day will be a, a day of joy and jubilee rather than disaster and doom for those for whom we pray. And so we're called to be a people who pray for others, who intercede for others, for one another, for our unbelieving friends and family and co-workers and, and neighbors. And we're called to be a people who pray on behalf of our neighborhoods and our communities, on behalf of our nation and its leaders, as you saw this morning. We're called to be a people who pray for other nations and global concerns in our world today. Like Amos, we're called to this practice of intercession. And so look with me next at the, at the exhortation to intercession. Now, part of the temptation for us today would be perhaps to, to, to see this, this vocation, this duty of prayer and intercession as kind of, kind of delegated to those religious professionals. You know, we, we, we look at Amos, he's a prophet amongst God's people, not an average citizen. Additionally, in the Old Testament, priests had this, this duty, uh, the special duty and call to intercession. So perhaps this calling is is just merely laid on the, the religious professionals and pastors and, and whatnot in our midst. 
And of course, it's true that pastors have a unique call to this, this duty. But in contrast with the world of, of, the, of the Old Testament, we're, we no longer have like a group of prophets or priests set aside in the church. We're all prophets and we're all priests. We believe, uh, as one Pentecostal scholar put it, in the prophethood of all believers. We believe in the priesthood, that great Reformation doctrine, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. When the Holy Spirit descended upon the church in Acts 2, all of God's people from that point forward are filled with the same Spirit that used Amos as his instrument, and Moses as his instrument, and Abraham as his instrument, and and all the rest, the same Spirit that worked through the prophets of old is in each of us who genuinely profess the name of Christ. And this, this, this was prophesied by the prophet Joel, actually. And it's repeated again to Peter in his sermon in Acts 2. He, he preaches here from, from Joel in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit fell on the church. And so look what Acts 2, 17 and 18 says as Peter is preaching and quoting Joel. He says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Listen to this. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. In other words, he's saying, all of my people, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, all of my people are filled with the Holy Spirit and will therefore live as witnesses for the living God. All God's people are prophets and priests sent as representatives of Him as the one true King. It's an amazing thing. What what a privilege we've been given. What an honor to be called and sent as representatives of the King of the universe. It's an amazing privilege, but, but with this privilege also comes responsibilities. Like Amos, you're called into this intimate relationship with the living God and a life of witnessing on his behalf. And part of that includes the practice on inter- uh, of intercession on behalf of those that you know and love and are called to. You're called to, enlo- to a life of intercession on behalf of your neighborhoods and the nations. You're called to a life of intercession for your church, for your communities, for your loved ones. You're called to pray for governing authorities, whether or not you like them. I I, I hear so much complaining about governing authorities, but I imagine there's probably so little prayer for them. Stop complaining and pray. In your work, if, if, if you're called to pray for your coworkers. If you're married, you're called to pray for your spouse. If you're a parent, you're called to pray for your children. When was the last time you prayed for your spouse, for your children? Or, or this year, we, we've asked each member of Veritas to, to, to just at least identify one person that you're going to intentionally pray for and seek to engage with the gospel. Are you still praying for that person? Are you still are you praying for one another as members of a, a local church together? Do you, do you regularly lift up one another's needs and requests in prayer? If not, let me exhort you to intercede, to advocate before the throne of God on behalf of others. Begin doing it now. Give yourself to this practice of intercessory prayer. And there are two 
kind of arenas in which I'd like to exhort you in this in. The first is to do so in, in private prayer. In private prayer. I, I'm concerned that perhaps some of us don't spend time in daily prayer and intercession. Perhaps you wake up and you go straight to your daily routine in which are absent prayer and intercession. Or perhaps you go straight to your phone. It's a practice that is so unbelievably common and so unbelievably unhealthy. And yet so often, that's what happens today. Or maybe maybe you do uh, read your Bible, quick 10 minutes, say a quick prayer, and then move on about your day. If that describes you, if any of that describes you, I want to exhort you to take up your calling and vocation as a follower of Christ and fervently pray and intercede on behalf of others. When you wake up in the morning, wake up earlier than you normally do. Take a page out of Amos's book and seek the face of the Lord on behalf of others. Keep a list of needs. Keep a list of requests from other church members, from neighbors, from friends and family, the news, whatever. Work through it daily, weekly, monthly. Be a people who intercede in private prayer. And not only privately, but do so with others in the church. I want to call you not just to, to private intercession, but to communal intercession. In your city groups, you should be praying for one another and for one another's requests. There's something that the Lord has burdened your heart with, then then you should pray about it and share it with your group and pray about it together. Or when we begin frontline prayer meetings again, like most prayer meetings, those are very small. Prayer meetings should not be small. As as, uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, prayer meetings are the throbbing machinery of the church. It's the engine of the church. He also said once that that we're never going to see much change for the better in our churches in general until until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. And he's he's right. You can't expect to be a fruitful church or to see God move in, in mighty ways in our community, in our city, in our homes, if we're not a prayerful and interceding people. But then I'd like to exhort us, not just in the practice of of intercession, but in the prerequisites for it. So there's the practices, but there are also prerequisites for even becoming a people of intercession. And first, I'd exhort you to believe that God answers the prayers of His people. God truly answers the prayers of His people. If our churches will not see much change for the better without the prayer meeting being held in a place of higher esteem, as Spurgeon said, We also might say that our prayer meetings will never be held in higher esteem until we recognize that God answers prayer. The Lord is not a distant God indifferent to the cares of His people. He's involved. He cares. And if we persistently and earnestly seek Him, He delights in answering us. Don't you see that here in Amos? The way the Lord graciously and willingly answers His prayer. Of course, that's not to say that we're always going to see the the answers to our prayers that we want or when we want. It's not for nothing that Jesus said to us to to, to always pray and not lose heart, Luke 18, 1. This is so important. You know, I I remember a few years ago, I was talking with another uh, pastor on our network, Sojourn Network, church planter, and and he was kind of sharing just uh, that their church was only a couple years old, and, and they'd seen many 
many people that year come to trust in Christ through their church, many more than they had in previous years. And he said, you know, we really haven't changed anything. We didn't change our small groups, our church services. Uh, We haven't done any extra evangelistic events. We haven't changed evangelistic strategies. We haven't really done much anything different except for one thing. We've just been praying a lot more for people to come to know Christ. You know, that's, that's a good reminder for me because I stand before you as evidence that the Lord answers such kind of prayers. I mean, I remember 12, 13 years ago, walking into my, my parents' church building, and uh, I, my, my brother and, and, and a whole group of people, were there, they were praying for me. I, my name was on a list, and they were praying for me, which I thought was so weird. And I didn't know it then, but I was truly in for it. I, I hated the church. I was running away from Christ. I hated Christianity. I thought it was bogus. And yet, just a few months later... Here I am, repenting and trusting in Christ. God answers the prayers of his people. I love the the story of Luther and his friend Frederick Maconius. Okay, so it's 1450, or 1540 rather, my bad. And Luther's good friend and partner in the Reformation, Frederick Maconius, he gets sick. And he's convinced he's going to die. And so he writes Luther a letter to show him, like, I love you, brother, and I'm so appreciative of you. Before I die, I just wanted to uh, show you my, my, my love and affection for you. And, and Luther gets angry, and he writes him back. And this is what he says. He says, I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the world of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you're dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying, and my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Like only Luther could, could pray. It's I mean, this is jarring, isn't it? Does that seem like a ridiculous thing to say? Luther, though, he saw prayer a little bit differently than we do. He, he said that prayer wasn't so much overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. As as the Puritans used to say, he saw prayer as grasping the arm of divine omnipotence. And so, so like Amos, he, he saw the God to whom he was praying as a God who is good and powerful and who delights in answering the prayers and intercessions of his people. He, he, he saw him as a God that would answer prayer. Do we know anything about that? Do we know anything about that kind of bold faith when we turn our face to heaven? Do we see a God who's ready and willing and, and, and ready to answer us? Do we pray with that kind of bold expectancy? I know I could grow in this. And by the way, Frederick Maconius did recover. He lived years later and outlived Luther by two months. The other prerequisite for intercession that I exhort us in is, is the prerequisite for, for, of sympathy, of compassion, of empathy, of genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our fellow image bearers, those outside our walls here. You see that the prayer meeting will also never be held in, in higher esteem until we're moved with sympathy and compassion for one another in those outside these walls. You see that in in Amos, don't you? So moved with sympathy and compassion. Forgive, cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. He's so moved with compassion. Where do you think that comes from? I'd suggest that, that Amos 
knows that he deserves this same kind of judgment that God is pronouncing. I'd say that's probably what it is. He knows that he stands as a sinner before the holy God who deserves the same kind of judgment. You know, you can never have true sympathy for another person as long as you think they need God's grace more than you do. It reminds me of a a 16th century preacher, John Bradford. John Bradford, legend tells us, was preaching in the town square one day in England somewhere. And uh, a, a number of prisoners are, are kind of coming through and, and being led to their execution nearby. And the crowd that had gathered to hear John Bradford uh, jeered and looked down on these, on these uh, criminals and self-righteousness and disgust. But when Bradford looked at him, he saw himself. He sympathized with me. He had compassion on them. And he said, there, but by the grace of God, go I. I'm one of them. And don't you see, we'll never be moved to regular prevailing prayer on behalf of others unless we have that same kind of posture of sympathy toward our neighbors. They must have sympathy and compassion upon those for whom we intercede. It's a prerequisite for intercession. And so I exhort you, you Veritas, be a people who give yourselves to the practices of intercession, both privately and communally, and cultivate within yourselves the prerequisites for it of, of believing that God answers prayer and of sympathy for others. We find this in Amos. But then we find it not only here an example and in exhortation, we also find encouragements for intercession. The first encouragement we find to pray and intercede in this text is the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign and all-powerful. The theological word for this is omnipotence, omni, all, potence, powerful. He's omnipotent. Again here, he's called Adonai Yahweh or Adonai Jehovah, the sovereign Lord, he's the one who holds the entire universe in his hand. He's the one who forms the locust. He's the one who creates the fire. He's the one who sinned or averts disaster. He's the one who controls the destinies of the nations. He's the one who holds the planets in their place, who knows every star by name, who created the cosmos, who has intimate knowledge and control of every speck of dust floating in this room. He is sovereign. Do you think he would be intimidated by the size of your requests? No way. Sometimes, I know we we might feel tempted to think that, that God's sovereignty is a discouragement to pray. I can't tell you how many times if I had a dime for every time I heard, why pray if God is sovereign? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question would be, why on earth pray if he's not? If God isn't sovereign, there's no point in praying. Who knows whether he can actually do anything that we're asking? But if God is sovereign, we know he can do anything. He can move any heart. He can save any soul. He can break any wall. He can transform any city. He can transform any nation. He can heal any body. There's nothing he can't do. And so we ought to remember that God is sovereign and all-powerful, and we ought to see prayer as that 
grasping of the arm of divine omnipotence. God is sovereign. And next encouragement, intercession is the means through which God accomplishes His sovereign will. Okay, so we, we can talk about God's sovereignty. He's the ultimate cause and mover, but the Lord also, almost always, chooses to work through means. He doesn't always, he, he rarely ever works immediately in a situation. He almost always chooses to work through mediators, through means, through instruments, through tools, through secondary and tertiary causes to accomplish His will. For example, when someone begins to trust in, in Christ and, and His promises for salvation, how does that happen? Well, well on, on one level, we would say the Lord is the one who accomplishes it, right? We believe that, that refrain throughout Scripture, salvation belongs to the Lord. But ordinarily, He works through means, through instruments, through secondary and tertiary causes, even while He's the primary cause. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.22 can speak of salvation of lost soul as his own work. Listen to what he says. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And a new Calvinist might hear that and go, Paul, that's dumb. You don't save anyone. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, he means that he's the instrument through which God saves. He means that that he's the one through which God works out his own ends. As he says in Romans 10, 14 to 15, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? You see, he uses the tool of a sent preacher like a skilled workman uses his tool to accomplish his task. But then in light of our text this morning, we might also add to Paul's words here, How then is that preaching going to be made effectual without the prayers and intercessions of God's people? That's why Paul often asks churches to pray for him and to pray for his preaching because those who come to believe come to believe through preaching of the gospel, yes, but the preaching of the gospel is made effectual by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who moves through the prayers of God's people. And what an encouragement to pray, right? You can be involved in what God is doing here on earth. You can participate in God's kingdom coming and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. You can be involved in that. You can shape world history and transform individual lives through intercession and prayer. And it's not you, of course, it's God But don't you, he wants to include you in what he's doing. He wants to use you in what he's doing. Just like I I delight in having my boys help me mow the lawn. Or my my girl helping me to do the dishes. I I delight in that. Are they really helping? But I want to include them. They are co-laborers with me in what I've been called to do by God. And so, in the same way the Lord wants to use you in your prayers and your intercessions to accomplish His will on earth, didn't He use Amos and His intercessions here in that way? He did, and He still does. But then, friends, I I think we'd be remiss if we just left it there this morning. You know, I'm I'm afraid that if, if we just left it there this morning, there's potential that we might be a very zealous and religious group of 
prayers and intercessions if we actually applied what was said here. But all the while, we'd be, we'd be lacking the power and assurance that comes with the gospel of grace. You see, because before we can become like Amos and follow his example of intercession here, we need an Amos who stands in the gap between us and God. Before we can follow Amos' example here, we need to realize that we're more like Israel than we are Amos. We need someone to be a go-between for us and the living God whose judgment we deserve because we haven't believed His promises. We haven't believed Him in the way that we should. We haven't been the compassionate and sympathetic people in the ways that we should. We haven't showed empathy and genuine love in the ways that we should. And so the last encouragement for intercession is this. Christ is the better Amos who's interceding for you right now. And that might sound strange to you. And you know, I, uh, I think it was Dane Ortland or Gavin Ortland, one of the Ortlands, they said that Christ's intercession is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church today. And that's, I think that's probably true. You need to see that the Christ who died and rose from the dead for you is the same Christ who ascended 40 days after his resurrection and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, our judge. And while we deserve his condemnation, just like Israel, for being a cold and apathetic and unjust people, Christ is there praying for us, pleading for us, interceding for us. And because of his presence and intercession there, we're accepted there. We're forgiven and freed from God's condemnation. While our guilt and sin cries out for our condemnation, just like Israel, Christ is there pleading and interceding for our forgiveness and freedom like Amos. And Christ's prayers and intercessions are always answered. He stands before the living God for you and I, and he says, Father, I know that they deserve your condemnation. I know that they deserve your judgment, but I've died for them. I've risen for them, and so please forgive them, heal them, restore them, give them victory. And the father, he, he replies, he said, yes, son, I, I know they deserve my condemnation. You're right, but I delight in you, and I delight in what you've done, and I delight in your prayers, and so I delight in forgiving and healing and restoring the sinful people, and I delight in gathering them in as my very own children. I delight in that. Yes, that's what's going on in heaven right now. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The author of Hebrews put it, he, that's Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's constantly applying his work on Calvary in the empty tomb to us in his intercession, continually, always, without ceasing. He's pleading for our acquittal, our justification, our forgiveness, our freedom. 
As the great Wesleyan hymn puts it, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive they cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. That's what's going on in heaven right now for you. And now how does this encourage intercession in us? How is that an encouragement for intercession for us? Well, well, because of Christ's intercession, you can be assured that you're accepted by the living God. You have full and free access to the throne room of heaven whenever you want. If you approach the living God through his son, you will never, ever, 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 ever be turned away. He's never going to say to you, will you leave me alone? Why? Because Christ, as your mediator, is your righteousness. He's your acceptance. And because he's seated at the right hand of God as your mediator, Hebrews 4.16 says that we can then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. If you trust in Christ, you don't need to wonder when approaching God if he'll accept you, if he'll listen to you. Because of Christ's mediation and intercession, you're always welcome. You're always heard. You can come boldly into the presence of God with heart full of assurance, even if you're no good at praying. You don't even, maybe you don't even know what to say. Don't worry. Just say what's in your heart, and the prayers of Christ are going to clean yours right up. Because Christ who lived for you, who died for you, and rose for you, and ascended for you, is there right now representing you, interceding for you before the living God, pleading your full acceptance at his expense. He's not a grumpy fundamentalist. Instead, he's deeply moved with sympathy and compassion for you, full of genuine love and empathy for you, even in your weakness and in your sin. He's in heaven for you right now as your intercessor. Look to him now. Look to him every day and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Let's do that now together. Father, we do give you thanks that Christ is seated at your right hand, interceding right now, pleading for us, for our forgiveness, for our healing and restoration and victory over sin and guilt and death. We pray that that would give us such assurance and confidence to draw near to your throne in intercession and to draw near to your throne now as we're about to participate in the Lord's Supper. Help us to approach the Holy of Holies with reverence, but with hearts full of assurance Because while our sin and guilt cries out for our condemnation, Christ's righteousness, his cross, his resurrection cries out for our acquittal and for for our full and free forgiveness at his expense. Help us to be assured of that and to revel in that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.